Hello and welcome back to the NUFC Opinion Blog. Today I am joined by another Newcastle legend in, New- in Luke Edwards. Luke, how are you doing? Newcastle legend, that's the way to win me over, isn't it? Well, I, I, this is how I've referred to all the other guests I've had on. All of them? Right, okay, well you've just undone all the good work there straight away. Sorry. Well, I've, well, I've referred to like, you know, like George Culkin and all, they're all part of Newcastle legends in my book, so you're, right, you're, okay. you're, in with, you're in with esteemed company, put it that okay. way. Fine, fine, fine. Anyway, first question I have is what actually created your passion for writing and indeed, and indeed journalism? Oh, um, well, I was always good at writing. Um, so you can go back to primary school, probably. Um, yeah, I was. Um, yeah, it's just something that always came naturally, being able to write. Um, I sometimes find it easier to write than talk, um, as my wife will testify. Um so yeah, I was uh, I was always very I was football mad when I was younger. Absolutely football bonkers, like to kind of geek proportions. Um, so I just loved football and reading about football, uh, playing football. And then when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I probably realised um, that I wasn't going to make it as a professional footballer. Um, and I can remember uh, watching a late in Orient game. Uh, with my mum and dad and uh, there were lights on at the back of one of the stands um, and I'd always I remember asking them what what is like why they're why they're lights there why is that bit of the stand different to to the rest of it and they said oh that's where the football journalists sit um, I mean I was a lot younger than 15 16 then I have to say um, probably about eight or nine and something just sort of captured my imagination that you had this job where you were paid to watch football um which just seemed to me at that age absolutely brilliant so um i think i just combined the fact i was good at writing i was actually there were t- i had two choices really i was um i always wanted to be an actor um and i acted all the way through my childhood teenage years um did theater studies at a level um and then about 18 when i went to newcastle university i had the choice of working for the student newspaper or um decided I would do one thing apart from being a student um, and my history degree and I decided that I'd work for the student newspaper rather than carry on acting so that was that was the big decision really but yeah it just seemed the perfect job to me about 15 16 that I could get paid for watching football which um, one of the things I always say at this point is that I turned my hobby into a job which is great and I'm very grateful and my friends remind me frequently um, that I'm very lucky to do what I do um, you know, people who do proper jobs. Um, uh, but I lost my hobby. So um, I, I very rarely now watch football for, for you know, pleasure purposes. So I'm going to watch Leighton Orient versus Rochdale this weekend at Rochdale, um, which will be the first Orient game I've seen. Oh, God, totally over two years. Um, and it'll be my son's first football game. Who's a Geordie. Oh, wow. I, I always said when he was born that um, his first game would be an Orient game. Because once you know, you're an always an know is a catchphrase we have. So um, he'll always be an Orient fan, then probably go on to support Newcastle. Very good, very good. Now, you mentioned, of course, you studied in the city and wrote for the Courier there. And so was it um, studying in Newcastle that influenced you wanting to stay in the city and, and write for publications up here instead of going, say, back down south again? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, it, it's, even if you ask why I came to Newcastle University, it was the 90s and it had a really good reputation for been a party city effectively um, which I'm sure every student says the same thing Um, but it will also coincided with the kind of rebirth of the city and um, Kevin Keegan's entertainers football team and I was actually living in Sheffield we've moved to Sheffield when I was 
16. So I did my A-levels in Sheffield and I was kind of looking at cities that were about two hours away from from Sheffield, which I thought was the perfect distance to be a student. Um, so it was a choice between Liverpool and um, Newcastle were the two the two cities and it was a toss up really. Um, and I plumped for Newcastle just because the university was slap bang in the centre. Um, we'd always come up here as I was a child. My mum's best friend used to live here. So we'd always come up from London when I was a child. So it was just something about the connection. But yeah, I think working the the student paper in those days, the courier that you've just mentioned, um, it used to just be like a feeder into the Chronicle and Journal's um, graduate trainee scheme as it was then. So I did work experience on the journal uh, when I was still a student. And then I did extended work experience on the journal in the summer of 99. Um, and then I went to Australia, but they offered me a job. Um, so it's, a lot of it was timing, really. Like if they hadn't offered me a job, I'd have probably gone home and I'd have probably ended up in London, actually. Um, I always wanted to move back down to London until I met my wife, really. Um, so, yeah, all through my 20s, I was pretty much thinking I would go back down to London. but um, now, now I can't imagine living anywhere else, really. So, um, yeah, no, we're um, yeah, it, it did have a big have a big bearing. It was just it was just timing. Uh, there was always timing. So I was on news and then a, on the journal and then a job on sport came up when I finished my indentures, which is when the scholar when your trainee system uh, period ends. Um, and then I was offered a job on the Mirror. Um, just about a three months after I met. Um, the woman who is now my wife so if i hadn't i decided to stay for her really um a nice love story um very nice so i turned the job down on the mirror i think i was about 25 26 then um and that was in london um and then yeah i ended up staying on the journal for 11 years and then got the job on the telegraph yeah indeed and of course I, I, I did do my research, obviously. And so you were at NCJ Media and Journal, etc. Uh, from 2000 to 2011. So how was your time there? Was it, was it enjoyable? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, I can remember walking into the newsroom um, and it was just like a great buzz. It's just like if you've always wanted to do something, it's completely different now. But I kind of caught the end of the golden period of, of journalism or newspaper journalism um three different newspapers in one building all in different parts of the office huge buzz there's an amazing social life it employed like the company employed over a thousand people um and i just felt like i it was just one of the greatest certainly the first sort of five years were just amazing um real eye opener and then oh, i loved it all you know i started on sport when bobby robson was manager bobby robson had been one of my like absolute heroes when i was growing up the 86 world cup 90 world cup to him to be the first manager who I got to know socially. Um, lot, you know, after he'd left Newcastle, stayed in touch with him, got on with him really well by the end. Um, one of my old school friends, um, Kieran Dyer, signed for Newcastle when I was at the Journal. Um, so I had a, I had a probably five years of, um, you know, I was going out with the footballers a lot and got to know them all. And that was all great. But then we had all the European games. Um, you know, traveling around Europe. And I just love the journal. I'm still very, very protective of, of the local media up here because without the local media and without the journal taking a chance on me and without, as you just said there in your last question, without them giving me that opportunity straight from university, I would never have made Newcastle my home. I wouldn't have the family that I have now. I wouldn't have the wife that I have now. Um, my mum and dad have moved up here um, from London in the last few years. So they live in Whitley Bay. So this is very much my home and it's only my home and my life has only turned out how it has done because of the journal. So 
yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I would think I was a bit of a tearaway. I think you'd have to ask some of my former editors. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't very easy to manage um, and uh, <laughs> uh, tested people's limits, I think. But um, it was a great, great time. I absolutely loved it. I, honestly, I, I really, really loved my time. But, uh, yeah. It, it was and, and, and so obviously you, you did move on eventually. And so why did you move to The Telegraph? And, and what's that been like since you've been there? Um, I think after 11 years... It was just time for me to go on to a to a national. I, I turned down the job on the Mirror um, about five years earlier, um, and I've become chief sports writer of the journal. Then, um, and I was sort of headhunted, really. Um, so you don't turn it down, and um, I missed it for the first year or so. I missed the journal a lot because I work from home now, um, so I missed the office and I missed the the, the camaraderie and interaction with people. But it was just time for my career to, to move on, and then you know since then I've become Northern Football Writer of the Telegraph. So I, I don't just I don't just cover the Northeast anymore. Um, I do the Manchester clubs, I do Leeds. Um, I moved into women's football as well, which is something I'm very passionate about. Um, so yeah, it was just career progression, more money, um, bigger profile. Um, so yeah, and, and yeah, um, it's it's just something you do. People always used to do it. You used to go from regional newspapers to the nationals. That used to be a very regular sort of career path. Um, it's become a lot, lot harder in the last few years to make that move. Um, I mean, there are still opportunities, but it's a lot harder. And there are people, you know, who I came through with at local newspaper level. Most of them have moved into PR, um, communications jobs, or, or they're still working in regional newspapers. So I know I've been very, very lucky. Um, and the Telegraph has always had my grandparents, both sets of grandparents always read the Telegraph. Um, and it was always been a great sports newspaper. So uh, it was, yeah, uh, I hate the expression, but it was a no-brainer really to, to go. And it meant I could stay in the, the Northeast rather than leave, which was very important to me. I've been waiting for a job up here because I didn't want to leave. Um, and although there's been the odd talk of me moving down to Manchester, um, across to Manchester and down, um, which is funny enough where all my best friends live, um, we've managed to stay in the northeast and keep the family home here which is very very important to me um and obviously to my wife and, and her family yeah and so given that you are very experienced in the industry what advice would you give to young journalists for example like myself who are, who are coming through and trying to make a career for themselves well i was lucky as i said at the start because i was about 15 16 so um i was i did work experience on the east anglian daily times for you know you get a work placement don't you and you're fighting your you what is it year 11 i think yes yeah, year 11 so I, uh, wait, I, I had mine in year 12 but yeah year still. 12 yeah so i knew then i think the, the advice is you've got to be very very driven um you're not going to earn fortunes um you've got to put the hours in you've got to put the time in you've got to have the dedication i mean i was when you know i was working for the student newspaper at university if you're at university you've got to do that uh, there's a, there, I think particularly if you want to go into newspapers, there is a tendency now with your generation that everyone wants to be a YouTuber and everyone wants to be do videos. But if you want to be a YouTuber and then you say, oh, suddenly I want to go and get a job in newspapers or print media. It's not even print media anymore. It's digital media or just working for a website. That's not necessarily the crossover skills. But what you can take from your crossover skills are the dedication, the hours. I, you know, I was I was going to cover university sport matches on a Wednesday when my flatmates were all at home on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, doing what students do. I was putting the hours in there and I was doing work experience on the journal in the, in the Easter holidays, in the summer holidays. 
um, uh, so you build up a portfolio and the portfolio idea, I was given that advice when I was oh, probably when I did my first work experience, 15, 16, you've got to have a portfolio of stuff you've written, a body of work. So what you're doing now is great because you've got a body of work. You've, you've shown that you're going to, you know, you've got the um, get up and go to contact me and ask me to do it. You've asked other journalists to do it. It's an exp a great expression in the Northeast about shy bands getting out. And yeah, yeah. It, it's absolutely true um and that is basically journalism shy bands getting out i mean you take that with you for the for, for the rest of your career but I, I do my wife's a primary school teacher so i sometimes go into her class and i always think you know what what quality does a does a journalist need well you've got to be nosy i mean mm -hmm. that, that, it sounds very simple but you've got to be nosy you've got to be other people in, in want to know about other people's business so there are you know, you've got to have opinions. You've got to be able to argue these, those opinions. And people always ask me, why did I do a history degree rather than a journalism degree? Well, there weren't as many journalism degrees then. Um, but my history degree was, uh, if you think about when you write an essay for history, you study the evidence and then you write an essay in a, in a clear and concise manner, which is effectively what you do in journalism. You speak to people, you interview people, or there's something happens and you offer an article based on it. So it's very transferable skills. I know you hear a lot about that at university, but transferable skills are absolutely crucial in everything you do at university. You shouldn't just be doing your degree course because that, mm. won't, that won't get you a job. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking journalism or whether you're talking about going to be a banker or whatever. Transferable skills are absolutely crucial. So, yeah, getting into the journalism, you've got to, you've got to have that body of work when you come out of university or not necessarily when you're out of university, you've got to have written for websites, you've got to written for fanzines, you've got to do what you're doing now, making videos, doing YouTube, um, and you've got to then be able to present that to show that you are, because the competition is so severe, even to like get a job at the Chronicle, they will have hundreds of applicants for every single vacancy they have. So you've got to have something that makes you stand out and having that body of work behind you, having that portfolio, is far more important than any ed, um, any educational qualification you've got. So you've got journalism students from all over the country applying for these jobs, but it's what you've done beyond your course that will get you the job. Yeah, very good. And so moving on to a football sort of side of things now, uh, what obviously you, you've covered Newcastle for, for a long time. And so what, what do you think is so compelling about this club that has kept you wanting to keep writing about them? 20 years it was 20 years this the start of this season um so yeah it's a bit of a landmark um i'll tell you why i like it and there's a story i tell about my two neighbors who were in their 70s they're probably in their 80s now and when they used to read the journal um and they never went to a football game they never they never went to watch newcastle play but they knew absolutely everything that was happening at that football club they would devour the sports pages of the journal every day and I used to talk whenever I saw them they'd always want to talk about football and I don't think there's a city in the country Sunderland actually to be fair um Sunderland is, is is probably the same but I don't think there's a city the size of Newcastle's or urban area of Newcastle if you include Gateshead North Tyneside and, and South Tyneside where the football club matters so much to the daily lives and the daily conversations of of the city and the people and it was always that. And look, I, I was spoiled a little bit because, you know, I had the Keegan years growing up. And then I started working at the journal when Bobby Robson, I was in Australia when Bobby Robson was appointed. But I came back from Australia and he was manager and it, and it was all beginning to launch again. So it's always been for me 
a special football club because of what I've just said about its place in the city. It's all, and it just matters to people. And, you know, being, you know, look, I get loads of abuse on social media, which is fine. It doesn't, you know, people might think it keeps me up at night. It really doesn't. But it's, um, it's about the fact that people care so much about it. You know, the fact that I do get all this abuse and people care what I'm saying, care what I'm writing. If you're a journalist, you want to be read, you know, um, you, you want people to listen to what you're saying, to, to, to listen to your arguments, to read what you're writing, listen to what you're saying. I do a lot of work for the BBC now as well. Um, so that was, I think that really tapped into it. And I've always loved, I don't know what it is about the Northeast, and I'm going to say the whole of the Northeast. It's not just about Newcastle for me. I really miss covering Sunderland, actually, and, and Middlesbrough. Um, but it's the people here, up here. Um, I think they have a unique quality. My wife is half Norwegian and I'm doing a lot of reading about Vikings at the moment and um, the period of history. I'm a bit of a geek like that. I still re read my history. And the Northeast has that of probably all the areas in the UK. It has a really strong ancient Viking Norse presence here. And I think it is a unique part of the country. And I think the people are unique. And again, a bit of a cliche, but they work hard and play hard. And I was an absolute party animal when I was younger. Like I was always out people will tell you some stories about me turning up at i can say it now because i was at the journal but i used to turn up at games having not been to bed and um the, the demolition derby the five nil one uh you should get mark douglas on to talk about what state i was in um during that game um but look i just loved it and i, and I love that cult i love that kind of culture where people do play i mean i work extremely hard as well but i like playing hard as well and i like the fact that I remember being a student and looking at people on a Sunday night and I would like me and my friends would be like, God, there's like people of all ages out. Like, there's people in the fifties and sixties out having a good time. And that, I don't know. It just tapped into me. And I think the people are warm. I think they're friendly. I think they don't suffer falls. Um, it was a very strong left wing area. Um, I was a huge, very political when I was younger and I still am to an extent. And I'm a member of the labor party. And there are certain values in the Northeast um, that tapped into my own so i always say i'm kind of southern in personality but northern in values and um having lived in sheffield and been in yorkshire i i, I was just very very happy here and um covering the football club is just part of that it's about part of the people and the passion that people have for life not just for the football club but for life up here and, and it is and i don't know whether it is to do with the fact that so many you know people from scandinavia settled here i suspect it is the accent I've done loads of research on this. The accent is very with very um, Scandinavian. The words of you can see where the words have morphed from from Scandinavian. So maybe it's to do with the fact that I've like Vikings. I've married a, a half Norwegian woman, so uh, maybe I just like the Vikings. That's what it is. Fair enough. Yeah. And of course, in the last month, Newcastle was taken over, as we all know, made global news. Obviously, though, there are these these burning questions that a lot of people ask about the human rights and obviously where the money comes from, and so. <laughs> I know, obviously, you, you, you've had your fair share to say on that as well. And so how do you respond to like these questions when, when they get asked? What, what's your view on it all? Um, I think I'm, I'm, I'm instinctively uncomfortable with, what, with the state of Saudi Arabia owning a football club. We have to remember that the Saudi Arabian regime is one of the worst human rights record on the planet. They are not very nice people. Uh, not by and then you can sit there and say by western values and you can throw that at me but actually when you you know you're bombing civilians in a war 
and you're you know you're you're, you're suppressing all political opposition. You're 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 you know, imprisoning people and torturing people for disagreeing with the ruling family or political dissent. The treatment of women. Now, a lot of these, I don't want to displace my Western value system onto a, a Muslim country, but it's a very authoritarian Muslim country. Um, and that they have done some pretty awful things through the years, both domestically and, and abroad. Should a state be able to own a football club? No. But, but having said all that, and I've been absolutely consistent on this from day one, it is not football's place to police the country's that Britain does business with. Now, the British government is a military ally of Saudi Arabia. It sells them arms. We are the Saudi Arabian investment is all over the British economy, absolutely, or every level of the British and global economy. They are diversifying their uh, their economy away from fossil fuels, oil in particular, and they are vesting all over the place. Now, what they are doing with Newcastle is slightly different. Because Newcastle is a sports washing project. We've seen it with PSG and we've seen it with Manchester City. It is about cleansing the uh, all the things I said about the regime at the start. It's about watering that down, lessening the sort of impact of it. And it's a, so it's a move in soft power. It's about using Newcastle United and English football to project a different image of Saudi Arabia to the world as part of their diversifying the economy. It's, it's, a soft, it's called soft power is what they're displaying. Now... I think we have to be, I think we always have to be mindful of what it is, because it is a sports washing project, but it is not the place of football to, to say, no, we're not going to do that, or Newcastle can't do that, when Manchester City have had it, and when PSG have had it. You can't just suddenly say, oh, it's not right for Newcastle. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with it, and I will constantly talk about everything I've just said there about Saudi Arabia, and what I think of the regime, but I'm not going to sit there and say it's, un, you know, that's despicable that Newcastle have been taken over when, you know, they're, they're UK allies. They invest everywhere in the UK economy. Football is just another business. It's just another business. They were perfectly entitled once they cleared up the piracy issue to invest in Newcastle. It wasn't the place for Newcastle fans to say, oh, no, we're not having this takeover because we're uncomfortable with who's buying it. They are 80% stakeholders. Make no mistake, they are in charge. PIF is not separate from the Saudi state by any logical common sense view. The crown prince, who is the ruler of Saudi Arabia, is the chairman of PIF. But having said all that, it's happened. And whilst I report on all of these things, football, I write about a football team. I will continue to write about a football team first and foremost. But I will always have in the back of my mind about what this project is about and who the owners are and what they do. So... I was a bit uncomfortable, for example, with the tweet supporting the gay footballer who came out from the Newcastle United official account. Right message to portray. Absolutely. 100%. But when you know that homosexuality is illegal in Saudi Arabia and that you can be imprisoned for being gay or stoned for being gay or physically harmed for being gay, you have to kind of raise that side of it as well as saying, yes, OK, great. I'm pleased Newcastle United have done that. And it was the right message. But the owners don't agree with that. That message would not have been tweeted by the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia. That would not have gone out on their social media channels. They wouldn't have said that because that's not what they believe in Saudi Arabia. So I think we have to highlight that, those things and, and just constantly have a conversation. The problem we have now, in, particularly on Twitter and social media, but in the world in general, is we have to have a conversation. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying, but I'd at least like people to listen to what I'm saying. And I will listen to them saying what they want to say. And there are lots of people out there who go, oh, it's not fair because they invest in Formula One and they do boxing. And Yeah, but I cover Newcastle. And football is far more high profile 
it's the most high profile investment in terms of eyes on it anywhere in the world. You know, billions of people watch Premier League football. The Saudis know exactly what they're doing. They've seen what, PS, what, what Qatar benefits they've had from buying PSG. They see the benefits that Abu Dhabi have got from, from getting involved in Manchester City, and they are doing exactly the same. Now, all of these things have been said about PSG's owners, and they've been said against Manchester City's owners. It's not going to go away. This problem, Newcastle are going to be, this issue is going to be raised constantly. And I think, as I've said on Twitter today, you can support your football team 100% and back it and be very excited about what's happening, whilst also not defending the more dubious aspects of this project. You don't need to leap, to the, get on the defensive every time someone raises the moral issues uh, and the, the, the things, the bad things that Saudi Arabia do. You don't need to leap and take it as a personal attack on Newcastle. It's constantly going to be raised. You're going to get very, very tired doing it. I just think we have to have these conversations, like with the home of the the, the support for the gay footballer. When homophobia is so rife in Saudi Arabia and the PIF would never have tweeted that message, I think it's important we raise that because they are using Newcastle's name to pretend it's something that's not, if you know what I mean. You, know, they, you can't just divorce it from the fact of who the owners are. But equally, you can't just go around saying, oh, Newcastle fans are wrong and it's terrible what's happened. You shouldn't support your football team. That is just one of the most nonsense arguments. It's possible to support your football team and not condone murder or... or um, oppression of political prisoners or the war in Yemen. You could don't have to that, that you can be both. You can condone those things and carry on supporting Newcastle United. But when someone like me raises this issue, don't just shout them down. Or anyone else raises this issue, don't just shout them down in, in loyalty to your football team because it's it's about a wider aspect of that. It's about Saudi Arabia. It's not about Newcastle United necessarily. I think that's a really good answer that Luke. Yeah, very good. Um looking at actually like a footballing point of view, firstly, are you happy with Eddie Howe's appointment? I'm more happy with Eddie Howe than I was with Unai Emre. Um, I think Unai Emre and having conversations with people in the consortium um, and people around it, I think they were slightly blinded by Unai Emre's, Emre's name, his CV, the clubs he's managed, the trophies he's won. I, I'm not sure he was right. I'm a great manager, don't get me wrong. In two, three years' time, I might be sitting there saying Unai Emre is right for Newcastle. But in the situation Newcastle are, with the squad they've got, which is a poor squad. This idea that Newcastle squad is good, it's not. It's been rubbish for four years. The fact you've got the core squad from 2016 are still playing. Six of the team who came up from the Championship started against Brighton, plus Wilson and St Maximum, effectively. Um, it's a poor squad, and they needed someone who knew this new English football. Didn't necessarily need to have been in a relegation battle, but new English football and new the transfer market and who would be available. They needed a coach who could communicate really well. And Emre's time at Arsenal told us that, yes, he had a basic command of the English language and he's a very, very good manager. Don't get me wrong. Brilliant manager. Great CV. Would have been a, you know, a good appointment, but I think it was more risky. I do think it was more risky. I think this is actually a safer option because I'm more confident in how keeping Newcastle up than I am Emre. I'm more confident how we'll know what players are needed in January and who they can get than you know Emre would have been. And I just think it fits. It, it's a better fit for me. And I think for where Newcastle are all in their um, in their sort of rebuild and rejuvenation, I think Eddie Howe's the better manager to take the club. He may take them back into the top six. He may be brilliant. We don't know. 
Um, but I just think for where they are now to stabilise and put those first building blocks in place to improve, um, I think he's the right man. I'm, 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 I'm very excited. But I mean, the hard work starts now. I mean, all yeah. talk about <clears> I couldn't well, care less. Brings on to my next question very neatly, which is: Will, in your opinion, will Eddie Howe keep Newcastle up? I think it's touch and go. I think a lot of it it will depend. I think a lot of it will depend on the next month. Because of the games, what they got Brentford, Arsenal, Norwich, and Burnley. Yeah. Now you take nine points from that. Yeah, I think you'll keep them up. I think you'll keep them up because I just you're not going to be cut adrift. Um, and as long as Newcastle are in touching distance, and I, I put touching distance at six, seven points adrift. I think they're still in touching distance. If they can get to January with that sort of gap, or better, or be even shorter, you know, to win some those the, the fixture list in December is horrendous though. Yeah. But, you, you know, you can pick up a win there. You can get a couple of points here and there. Let's not write it off. But I think we'll know more at the end of November because if they start getting to 12 points adrift, 15 points adrift in January, which is feasible with the run they've got, if they don't win these next few games in, in, in November, I don't care who you bring in in January. And I think it'll make it incredibly hard to bring players in in January if you're that far adrift. So we're going to, the next six weeks will probably make or break the season, I think, um, even before they get to January. Which is why Eddie Howe saying, please don't link too many players. It's about the players I've got now. These players are a bottom six, bottom seven Premier League squad. That's what they are. I'd have said that, whoever the manager was and what he inherits. With injuries, they're a bottom three, bottom four squad. So he's got a big, big job on his hand. But they've got a manager who will drill into them on the training ground. I think he will improve them on the training ground. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, but I think we'll know more. We'll know more by the end of November. I'm not even going to talk about this now. I think by the end of November, if they've picked up three wins out the next four, I think they're staying up. Yeah, very good, them. very good. Um, moving back to the ownership slightly, obviously, Emmanuel Stavely is targeted, say, in fact, 10 years to win the Premier League, which is, it's, it's big ambition. And so, in your opinion, what would you deem to be a, a successful ownership period for this consortium in, say, the next 10 years' time? Well, within 10 years, you would like to think they'll be in the Champions League, for sure. I mean that goes without saying. I think if 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 you if they're just another Everton or Villa, that's I mean it's better than it is now, but that's not successful. This ownership no. group, you don't make the hoo ha that they've done, and you don't say the things that Amanda Savely did if you're going to be happy finishing tenth. I mean they finished. I know it didn't happen very often, but they were capable of finishing tenth under Mike Ashley, very rarely. Um, but no, so they have to. They've talked the talk. The new owners. Um, the proof is in the pudding. I don't know five years they've got to be certainly you would they've got to be finishing the top ten every year you would say and and probably have qualified for Europe at least once in the next five years. But we will see. Everton have shown you can spend a lot of money and get it wrong. Um, you can have a wage bill that's over ninety percent of turnover as Everton have got, and it still go wrong and you still get nowhere near Europe. So. Europe, I think, I think they've looked to at least qualified once for Europe within, you know, in the next five years, and then in the next ten, you'd hope they'd have won a trophy of some some way, shape, or form, and got into the Champions League. I think that we have to judge them like that. We have to. Amanda Stavely has said she wants to win the. I don't see them winning the Premier League within five years. I think she was stupid to say that. To be quite honest, I think ten years fair enough, but it's not as easy to do what Manchester City and Chelsea did anymore. They were both starting from a higher base. They weren't second from bottom when the takeovers went through. They didn't have as bad a squad as Newcastle have got now when the takeover happened. And there are also now Chelsea and Manchester City ahead of Newcastle. It's not like you're just trying to break ahead of Arsenal, Tottenham, 
Man U and Liverpool anymore. There's more clubs and it will be hard, harder for Newcastle to get the elite players that were easier and more readily available for, for, for Chelsea and Manchester City when their takeover happens. So I think we're going to have to be patient, but anything's better than the last 14 years, isn't it? So, I mean, that's what's exciting. Isn't yeah, it? No, no, and that's... Comes next, it's better. And it, yes. And that's the most important thing. Yes, and that's a fantastic way to uh, sum up the interview. So, Luke, thank you very much for joining. No problem, Daniel. No problem at all. Good that luck with does... everything. Well, I'll have a quick chat to you after we've uh, ended the recording here, but still, thank you all very much for watching and how are the lads? <laughs>